Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. I'd like to welcome everyone to this week's macro analysis call. ACG Analytics has been calling this the macro year since January before the virus hit. I mean, we have lots to review. We have, of course, the Trump re-election. We have stimulus in Washington, stimulus in Europe, fundamental uh, news out of Latin America. ACG provides our research in a number of ways. We offer a written product. The weekly macro comes out every Tuesday morning, followed by our policy percentage piece on Wednesday. We have a firm belief that no two investors invest the same way, nor consume research. So we encourage you to reach out directly to research at ACG Analytics to interact with us directly. We're very lucky. We have a special guest with us today, Larry McDonald, publisher of Bear Traps Report. Larry's been a friend of ACG Analytics for over a decade. On the ACG team, the call will be led today by, by Chris Zerwinski. Chris is our lead international analyst, takes the, the first cut at thinking through where the macro picture is week to week, along with Bart Ustevel. Bart joins ACG Analytics, both from the Atlantic Council and before that from Moody's Sovereign Risk in London, and Brian Dean, our lead Latin American analyst. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Chris Zerwinski. Thanks, David. This is, in fact, a macro year. We've got developments all around the world, and some of the most important are are upcoming here in the United States with the next CARES Act. Of course, we will touch on Europe as well, developments over the weekend. But starting in D.C., as always, John, it seems like the Republicans are having a, a difficult time bridging the gap between themselves at the moment, between the Senate Republicans and the White House. I understand yesterday that the Senate and Mnuchin and Meadows came out and said that they're all on the same page. Do you believe that? Well, no, I don't believe that. They're trying to get on the same page, but they've been trying to get on the same page for months. Over the night, some new details came out. I'm still working through them, but it looks like there's not going to be a payroll tax deduction, which is something the White House had issued an informal, not formal, veto threat over. There was one idea to defer payroll taxes so they'd have to be paid back. That that was sort of a sop to the White House, but the plan was never going to pass. So that's now been taken out. The Republicans are really fighting with themselves, and we have at least five Republicans who are inclined to vote against another stimulus measure, and that's going to really help the Democrats gain leverage. So one of the ideas that's been floated over the last really two days was that in the place of a large bill, they would pass a bridge for unemployment, and there was even speculation that it would go to year-end. you put any stock in that? Well, it was a good idea if you're only thinking about workers right now and enhanced unemployment benefits and running out. But Democrats have been very cold to that idea. And of the details that have emerged over the evening, one thing remains undecided, and that is the level of enhanced unemployment benefits that would go out. There are some Republicans who want the number from 600 additional a week to 100 or 200. There are some who want to do it at 100% of your paycheck for some period of time, and then it decreases from there. But that's still under negotiation within the Senate Republican Conference. After the Republicans release their proposal, it's going to change again because Democrats are going to work part of their will on the bill. 
if they were to put this unemployment deal on the side, I had heard that the starting number for the package out of the Republicans was going to be one trillion, even without that extension of these enhanced unemployment benefits. Do you see the number still increasing past that point? I do, but I still believe there's a lot of pressure on the Republican side to keep the number down. I still believe we're going to hit around $2 trillion, but not get to the $3 trillion level that Democrats have proposed. It looks like it's going to be pretty difficult to get this done by July 31st. That was one of the reasons that this idea of at least getting the unemployment section voted on separately. You can't buy groceries retroactive. So even if the final bill gives people more money, you're still putting people in a pretty tough place, tens of millions of people in a pretty tough place right now in an election year. Yeah, we, we do love a little bit of drama here in Washington, D.C. Larry, I did want to ask you, too, at what point will the market start to get let down in terms of the timeline? If we start pushing up to that deadline, there's obviously going to be a lot of volatility surrounding that, but then also with the dollar amount. So right now, I mean, you've got the dollar is really dramatically oversold. There's a brewing fiscal cliff because you've got 31 million people collecting some type of unemployment compensation. And the market is not priced for a failure here. So it's one, you know, very dangerous thing going forward. So that's why you need some type of deal. But if the deal is cut in half or dramatically reduced, that's a pretty big negative GDP drag. But the big picture is fascinating. And this is, this is part of our investment thesis is that everything's coming together. The fiscal cliff is putting such pressure on the GOP to do something here. So you have massive pressure. Like the GOP wouldn't spend this kind of money if they weren't trying to save Trump presidency and save the Senate. There's a high incentive spend. So that's a big dollar negative, right? They do something large. And then, then on top of that, Brainerd and Harker, these speeches last week, are opening up the door to a new Fed policy that will be socially driven, be more dovish, not hike until you see the whites of inflation's eyes, as Larry Summers said. So you have this cocktail of things plus Europe in terms of Merkel's shift, more dovish shift, that's a, a, a euro-strengthening mechanism. So you have these three colossal ingredients into a recipe that is setting up really powerfully for commodities for the next 12 months. But to your point, we're overcooked in terms of expectations right now. The dollar is extremely oversold. So most likely, I think if you're in this trade, you take some off here and then you reload for another leg higher. Appreciate that. You mentioned the Senate in the upcoming presidential election. John, I mean, we're sitting here Things aren't looking good for the Republican Party. I think you've been saying that consistently. You see, you know, a blue wave over the horizon and one that's increasingly strong. We're getting close to perhaps even the ability of the Senate to change the cloture rules. What's the change in your thinking from last week, if any, in terms of probabilities of a full flip? I'm seeing signs of a wave forming. I still think that polls will narrow, but the ground is slipping away from Republicans. And in, in part of it, it's delays like this, where you make tens of millions of people worry about their economic future who are already in panic mode. On the other hand, there's a lot of civil unrest. And the other real unknown in this election is how 50 state plus other jurisdictions, which vote in the presidential election, implement totally new voting measures. Now, we have five states that are used to voting by mail. I don't anticipate we're going to have much of a problem in those states, but that's not true of the rest. So we're going to have, I think, a very litigated election. I think it's going to be slow to tabulate votes, and there's going to be a lot of confusion. And so that's going to affect turnout, and it's very difficult for me to model because this is an untested system. So we could potentially have our own modern-day hanging chad situation. If it's going to be like 2006 again, where 
control of the Senate hinged on two elections that were under half a percent of the vote, then I think we're going to have a very difficult time figuring out what happened. John, who do you think Biden will pick as his running mate? So the, the Biden campaign is being very tight-lipped about its selection process. Still, some details come out, but even uh, Joe Lieberman, Senator Lieberman, who served with God in the Senate for you know, 20 some odd years, uh, who, who talks to Biden, he says every day, said he's not even been apprised of what's going on. But I think some of the details are clear. Week, Biden said he was vetting for black women for the position. That does not mean he's not vetting other people, but it was a sort of telling comment. I'm not a gambler, but I have my money on Keisha Lance Bottom, the mayor of Atlanta. She's very well-spoken. She's been an early supporter of Biden, not a fair-weather friend like Senator Harris, and she helped make Georgia more competitive. And Georgia will be a purple state soon. I'm not sure it's quite there yet, but it's getting there at a very fast clip, trending about 2.3% more Democrat every election cycle. So I think Congresswoman Val Demings, who's the former Orlando police chief, also has a good shot. There has been some pushback against her by some progressives who basically don't want anyone who had the word officer in front of her name. But she helps also bridge a divide within the party. I don't believe it will be Warren, and I don't believe it will be Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris has been accused in the last week of leaking different stories to the press that put a knife in the ribs of her rivals for the VP slot. It's not a good look. I think it's hard to trust her after what she did to Biden during the debates. I don't see it as Kamala Harris. In terms of Treasury Secretary, Lael Brainerd has been floated, Federal Reserve Governor, very competent, a long history, liked by progressives, but that would be a competent pick. And I don't think that someone would pick Warren because unless the Democrats had so many seats in the Senate that they could afford to give one away, the governor of Massachusetts is a Republican. And so you would replace that seat with a Republican. Warren is sort of in the wrong place at the wrong time. We've seen this week the NDAA. We've now settled on amendments in the House. And it's interesting, John, because there are a number of aggressive China amendments there. One of them has to do with promoting U.S. semiconductor investment and manufacturing in the United States. I find that to be interesting considering the way that we're attacking Huawei and other Chinese companies. Outside of that, we've there's a uh, potential TikTok ban on federal devices, which, as I said before, I mean, <laughs> I'm very interested in people who are downloading TikTok onto their government phone. And then outside of that, there are other rules as simple as more transparency in lending at multilateral institutions. Some of these measures could provoke a retaliation from China if they pass. Can you just give us a quick timeline again on the NDAA and a lay of the land with respect to how these amendments would be moved forward in conference with uh, with the Senate? Well, this assumes that we have a conference, which is possible, but we could just trade amendments between the houses, but I think we, we may very well move to a conference. There is an effort right now, both the House and Senate are working on the bill this week to get it to a conferenceable position, presumably to pass before Senate recesses on August 7th. In general, if both houses have a provision, it should stay in the final bill. That's not always strictly true, but that is the rule. It's sometimes not followed. If one house has a measure and the other house does not have a measure, then it can fall out in conference or be amended. But clearly, one of the most bipartisan issues in D.C. is an antipathy towards China. And so I'm sure people have seen the news that we are ejecting the Chinese consulate in Houston from the country. And right now, there are accusations that 
the San Francisco consulate harboring a fugitive at U.S. law. So as this election heats up, measures to tackle China on any host of issues, IP theft, counterfeiting, all, all sorts of different measures, spying, are going to heat up. Now, the consulate thing is interesting because China's threatened retaliation, obviously. And how this fits into our broader picture, David, is that it's part of this tit-for-tat retaliatory escalation that we're seeing. But, I mean, it's my view anyways that it doesn't threaten the most important aspect of the relations, which is the uh, the phase one trade deal. Do you disagree, David? No, I, I don't. I think, I think there's two factors to that. Number one is the president wants to see the phase one trade deal stick. He wants to declare victory on it. Pompeo will be speaking on China today at Dixon Library in California, uh, somewhat ironic, walking by a picture of the you know, U.S. president with Mao Zedong. But we'll, we'll hear a very, we'll hear some real saber-rattling today on China out of Pompeo. It's consistent. But again, our, our base case is, as John said, this is a bipartisan issue, would survive a Trump presidency. The rhetoric will get heated much more so in uh, September, but as long as the president believes that there's rough compliance with phase one, we will not repudiate that trade deal. Here's the dynamic, okay? Last year, every single time there was any kind of headlines like this, okay? Every time the CNH uh, weakened dramatically and was in a, you know, raging bull market for weeks. But if you look at the five-year trend line, CNH is now strengthened by close to 4% since May 19th. And every single time there's one of these headlines, there's a momentary weakness and then a continued rally. That tells you uh, there's been some type of detente around the CNH. And what I mean by that is the emerging market currencies, economic beta from to the rest of the world from a stronger CNH, so you're talking about the Chinese yuan, is mind-bogglingly strong. So when you get a, a stronger yuan, all China's trading partners are in better shape, right? Ever since 2015, weaker yuan has a dramatically powerful negative impact on the global economy, right? So they, they finally figured this out because this was a problem over and over again. And so now there's some type of containment process because no matter what headline that comes out, okay, Pompeo, the middle night, all these things, you know, Houston, a currency that should be selling off is strengthening. And there's something very big going on here. And I think it's because the global economy is so weak to COVID that behind the scenes there's been some type of uh, Shanghai Accord around the wall around the dollar. They need a weaker dollar. They need a stronger euro. And they need a much stronger one. And that is the trend. And it's been happening regardless of any headline that comes out of Washington. Well, I can't, I can't comment on the, uh, the Shanghai Accord, but I can say and shift to, uh, to Europe and this stronger euro that you mentioned. Obviously, the deal over the weekend was positive. I mean, at least in my view, uh, obviously they ended up with a little bit less in terms of grants and more in terms of low interest loans. Bart, I mean, this is an overwhelming positive for the EU still, right? I think so, yes, Chris. And I think, you know, this is the outcome we had anticipated. We'd also said the talks would go into the weekend. We underestimated their willingness to talk to each other because it ended up lasting until Tuesday morning. In the end, the so-called frugal four got their concession in terms of instead of 500 billion in grants, there'll be 390. They then increased the amount of loans to 360 so that the overall package is still 750. One thing to note that's not really broadly reported is you know, nobody wants or needs a loan. So this is about the grant money and about the speed with which early next year they can disperse the money to the countries that need it most. First and foremost, Italy and Spain, which you know are hardest hit by the pandemic, are most tourism dependent, have big deficits, have debt loads in the case of, 
of Italy especially that are difficult to finance in the absence of support and a very accommodative ECB. So that's overall the fact that they were able to get to the agreement, I think is a positive. And I think it was in everybody's self-interest. Look at the numbers per capita. Every country gets more out of the EU than they contribute to the EU budget. The EU and the single market is a net positive for every country. Countries like the Netherlands and Germany are very dependent on the likes of Italy and Spain for their export products. Overall, good news. I don't think there's, you know, that much more to discuss there this week. It's obviously something that we're going to be covering closely in the future. And in Brazil, Brian, we've seen the economy minister, Paulo Guedes, deliver the first phase of tax reform uh, to Congress. What are the basic details here? What can you tell us? Right. Thank you very much, Chris. And indeed, most people have been that have been watching Brazil have been focused on President Bolsonaro's, you know, antics with respect to hydrochloroquine and other things. But behind the scenes, the minister of the economy, Paulo Guedes, has entered into a remarkable stage in the reform process with Congress. He submitted yesterday the first stage of a four-part tax reform proposal. This part of the proposal is the unification of two very complex taxes called the the PIS and the COFIN into a single new tax called the Contribution for Goods and Services uh, with a single rate of 12%. It's a VAT. It's the component of the bill that's being justified in terms of simplification for companies to pay their taxes and reducing the proliferation of administrative and judicial disputes surrounding the collection of those taxes. Anybody that's ever done business in Brazil will tell you that this has been a severe headache. So I think it's a, it's a net positive. It's happening at a very unusual time. The alignment of interest between the congressional leadership and the minister of the economy is very favorable right now. We think there's going to be a very constructive stage, at least in the lower house, bringing this legislation forward. What becomes complicated, Chris, is what happens next. There's a couple of proposals that the administration intends to submit that will have revenue implications that need to be compensated for. What Gedges has, uh, has long pushed for is a uh, financial transaction tax, similar to one that had been repealed in 2002 because of it. it was wildly unpopular. And I think that's down the road we're going to get into a more confrontational posture with Congress. But given the kind of the precarious nature of the Bolsonaro presidency right now, I think that this alignment between the centrist bloc of Congress and the Minister of the Economy on tax reform is something that is very favorable and could bring us to a version of tax reform passing the lower house by the end of the year and the Senate probably taking it up sometime early in 2021. So the reform agenda is very much alive. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.